Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. The West should stop apologizing and recognize that our ideals have given the world freedom from poverty, from squalor, from oppression. Westerners uniquely are set on a path of cultural annihilation. No other civilization is engaged in this degree of self-flagellation. They all have things as egregious to apologize for. None of them are doing it. Why the West is, is beyond me. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Heather McDonald. Heather, welcome to the show. Great to be with you again, Brendan. Thank you. It's always good to have you on, especially now. I feel like there is a lot for us to talk about. And the thing you and I talk about most often when you're on the podcast is... I guess the scourge of identity politics, the re-racialization of public life, the re-racialization of academic life, and the impact that all of that has on the values of Western civilization and on Western culture. So the last time I had you on the pod, we talked about your excellent book, When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty and Threatens Lives. And I feel like all those themes you've been writing about for a long time have really come to the fore of public discussion over the past few months. So I'm really keen to get your views on what's been happening. And I want to kick off with a broad question, I suppose. There is now a huge discussion about DEI policies, diversity, equity, inclusion, and the problems that they pose, especially on campuses. Lots of people are talking about it. Lots of people are wringing their hands over it. Do you feel happy with that? Do you think the discussion is going in a more positive direction? Are you feeling optimistic about the pushback we've seen against some of these policies? Well, I'm certainly happy that there's any discussion at all, because many of us have been calling this out for decades. And in America, at least, most people just want to turn their eyes away from it. Uh, so this is a absolutely novel development. Do I feel optimistic? <laughs> You know, that that would be asking a lot of me. I think that the buildup to this, even before the uh, October 7th pro-Hamas frenzy that came over American universities, was actually a good sign for optimism, where you had state governors, starting with Ron DeSantis, but others as well, that were starting to say, wait a minute, we don't have to fund these uh, parasitic bureaucracies that are built on a lie within our public university system. So that that was a policy change that was extraordinarily uh, innovative, I think, and, and took me by surprise. As far as what's going to happen with the universities and whether the donor and alumni rebellions that have been breaking out at, at some of the most prominent American universities like Harvard and, and University of Pennsylvania... Will they manage to steer the American university back towards its core mission, which 
as the great British philosopher Michael Oakeshott said, is the transmission of an inheritance from one generation to another, that is still very much in the air. And um, it's a race against time because every year the universities vomit forth another cadre of indoctrinated students who have been taught to believe that the very essence of American and Western civilization is oppression, which is a preposterous proposition, uh, and that the only way to fight that oppression is through affirmative race-conscious policies that supplant objective meritocratic considerations with the phony considerations of identity led by race, but also certainly with sex coming up in a close second. So it's a battle, and I applaud the donors that have organized and that are finally educating themselves about DEI, but it's really hard to say. Yeah, that's a a very uh, useful jumping off point, and there are so many things that I want to dig into with you. I guess to go back to the beginning of the current discussion, I want to just uh, bring listeners' minds back to December and the disastrous congressional hearing on anti-Semitism, which made waves around the world. I know it was huge in the United States, but there was uh, it was discussed in Britain, across Europe. It really made a huge impact on people's consciousness of some of the problems our society face. So this is where we had Claudine Gay, uh, then of Harvard, uh, Liz McGill, uh, who was then president of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT, and everyone watched them responding very, very badly to quite simple questions, such as, you know, uh, does calling for a genocide of the Jews go against your codes of conduct and, and so on. They handled it very badly. There was a huge storm, a global fuss, and, a, and I think a global focus on what might be going wrong in American universities. So I'm guessing you weren't particularly surprised by that congressional hearing. What what did you make of it? And, and why do you think it landed in people's minds as much as it did? Well, you know, Brendan, I'm going to be a dissenter here. And I'm going to hope that you'll be persuaded because you're the most important voice for free speech in Britain. And to me, the, the main problem with that hearing and with the stance of the university status quo to date is the extraordinary hypocrisy whereby they all claimed to be advocates of free speech and on that ground were unwilling to join what I think was sort of a trap laid by this New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik to say that, uh, calling for the genocide of of Jews would violate their conduct policy. And they said they wouldn't do that because they are such uh, strong advocates of free speech. Well, they are not strong advocates of free speech. The universities have been punishing dissenters for decades. They will not tolerate an alternative view on the grounds for racial disparities in in the United States. They will not tolerate an alternative view on whether people can, by fiat, change their sex. And so for them now, all of a sudden, to say, well, we cannot necessarily say that 
such a call would be a violation of our conduct policies because we love free speech was simply preposterous. That having been said, however wooden their effort to make a distinction between calling for the genocide of Jews, and I would also say that Stefanik had gone beyond anything that had been chanted by these student hyenas to date. You know, she was extrapolating from the calls for intifada to a call for genocide for Jews. And that's certainly one permissible interpretation of calls for intifada. But I'm willing to say that, you know, it it may have a different meaning for pro-Palestinian types. I would say that a call for intifada, certainly, and even perhaps in the worst case scenario, Uh, on American campus to call for the genocide of Jews would require a look at what the context is, which is what Claudine Gay in her condescending, self-righteous, totally off-pitting way was trying to say. And, And this points to what I think has been the major flaw of the university dissidents whom I otherwise completely support which is they are using some of the same tools of the left now to prosecute their cause. They're an absolute mirror image of the left. The left is saying, we support free speech, and therefore, you know, we're not going to condemn some of the more virulent and mind-boggling expressions of support for terrorism. Okay, so that's a contradiction. But the dissidents then say, We're against you universities because you've been suppressing free speech. Oh, and by the way, you should also suppress pro-Palestinian speech at the University of Pennsylvania. They wanted the administration to cancel a pro-Palestinian culture festival. You know, they want universities to adopt the international Holocaust definition of anti-Semitism, which is way broad. They want universities to ban the BDS movement, which I think is a complete uh, denial of expression rights. So I thought that the hearing was electrifying and illuminating, but for different reasons. It it showed that these academics are simply uh, lie through their teeth. And I also think that the campus dissidents, the donors, are making a mistake in often confining their critique to say the problem with our campuses today is they're anti-Semitic. And they're actually, the donors are actually asking for sensitivity training on anti-Semitism and for banning hate speech on anti-Semitism. I'm sorry, guys, you are walking into a trap. You are asking the university to do what it loves doing, which is running a crusade against hate. Admittedly, you're expanding the alleged victims of hate to a novel group, which is Jews, and that's going to cause some extreme conflict on the intersectional left. But nevertheless, you are still using their language and playing their game, and that is a big mistake. Yeah. Uh, Well, I completely agree with your dissenting opinion there. And um In the first piece I wrote about the congressional hearing on Spike, a couple of days after it took place, I made the point, I was very critical of the three presidents precisely for the reasons you give there, which is the, just the absolute hypocrisy, the idea 
that these were overnight converts to the cause of freedom of speech when we know that campuses like theirs are overrun with all forms of woke censorship and woke tyranny. Um, but I also acknowledged the fact that um, Claudine Gay in particular very clearly said that expressions of anti-Semitism are abhorrent and she tried to make the case for freedom of speech. And I reminded readers about something like the, the Skokie case when the ACLU back when it was a good organisation, defended the right of literal Nazis, who presumably do support a genocide of the Jews, to march through um, Skokie in Illinois. So the free speech argument is is very important and can't be forgotten. And I, th- I think probably, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, I think there was a strange and a difficult contradiction coming out of that congressional hearing. So on the one hand, it illustrated the fact that Jewish students are left out of the protections of political correctness. For some reason, they are not afforded the same protections of the DEI system as other minority groups. And that probably points to an element of discrimination on the modern American campus. But then the additional problem, as you've just alluded to there, is that the people's solution to that problem was to include Jews in the DEI system and to create more sensitivity training and more uh, awareness raising about hatred in order that Jews would then be folded into that system that exists on campuses. And that's a problem too, because then that will strengthen the DEI system and strengthen the systems of censorship and uh, intersectionality on campus. So it was a kind of strange, difficult moment, wasn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to say, why are Jews left out of this? And on the other hand, including them in it, will exacerbate the problems that exist? Well, I don't think it's strange at all, Brendan. The groups that get to call themselves students of color, and it's hilarious when Asian students lift up their hands and ask plaintively, please, sir, could we be students of color? I'm sorry, you don't get to be students of color because a student of color is is by implicit definition, a student who is failing academically. That is the definition. Jews are not going to be under the umbrella of DEI because they have been historically the most successful students on campus. Now, recently, they've been pushed aside by Asians who are even more, who have really adopted the Jewish mantle of just obsessive attention to academic success. And I say that not at all uh, condescendingly. I I applaud it. Uh, I think that that is an absolute important aspect of of life to believe that the mastery of knowledge and and using exploiting the opportunities at a college are, are paramount. So no surprise there that uh, Jews are are excluded because they can't point to their lack of academic competitiveness as a sign that the university environment is racist. You know, this is the whole fiction of the DEI enterprise, which is. If there's so-called minoritized students on campus and they are struggling academically, the only allowable explanation is that that this is a racist environment. The actual explanation, Brendan, as you know, is that they have been, on average, those so-called minoritized oppressed groups have been, on average, admitted to campuses with lower academic skill levels And quite predictably, the result of what is known as the academic mismatch effect, a theory that was put out most clearly and convincingly by a UCLA law professor 
Richard Sander, who, who wrote a book called Mismatch, which I recommend to everybody, along with journalist Stuart Taylor. It is like a natural law that if you admit students with a standard deviation lower to their peer groups, they are really going to flounder. So that's why the Jews aren't there. And it's, a, it's equally silly for the Asians to want to be there. But of course, it is a status symbol. It is a sign of power. There's nothing more powerful on campus today than to be a member of these marginalized student of color groups. So I disagree with you there. There was nothing surprising. But I certainly agree with you that to say we want to be part of that group is insane. And Bill Ackman, it's been very interesting. You know, he's been the most vocal opponent of Harvard. He's a very, very wealthy investor type. I don't know if it's private equity or hedge funds. He started out, he's, he had a hilarious interview on the cable channel CNBC on a show called Squawk Box, maybe in November, where he was saying, gee, I'd never... I never, I've, I've donated, you know, millions to Harvard, but I, I never got around to reading their DEI policies. And I did. And I was so surprised, as you said, Brendan, to find out that Jews weren't included. And the solution is to include them because the majority is so oppressive at Harvard. And we need all these groups. We need all these, these bureaucrats to protect the poor, marginalized people from the oppression of the majority. This was total insanity. The guy was an idiot. There is no oppressive majority at Harvard. The reason that these students of color minoritized populations are there in the first place at Harvard and every other American selective college is because their administrations are so desperate. They so want the minority populations. They are not racist institutions. But Ackman has done a very, very public education on this because he then started reversing his position and said, well, you know, maybe the solution isn't to expand the DEI portfolio. Maybe it's to get rid of it entirely. And yes, that is the solution. And here's the real solution. I mean, if you want to get rid of the pretext for the parasites, for the sinecures, for the, the complete huckster frauds that make up the DEI bureaucracy, what you've got to do is get rid of racial preferences because that is the mechanism that generates the grievance that allows these universities to falsely accuse themselves of racism and to create this massive apparatus of, of anti-racism and you know post-colonial studies and whatnot. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. 
Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Some of the things that you've written over the past few months, I always admire the things you write, but some of the things you've written in the past few months, I think have been especially important. And I want to ask you about one of the arguments that you've made, because we've all witnessed the pro-Hamas explosion on American campuses and among among leftists across Europe. You know, we've seen marches for Hamas, essentially, where it, here in the UK, we've seen lots of young activists um, either refusing to condemn Hamas or openly supporting it. So there's been some pretty shocking sights. And I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners will have seen clips from American campuses where we've seen students saying, we don't want no Jew state or, you know, projecting glory to our martyrs on the, on the wall of a library at George Washington University, I think it was. Um, shocking stuff. But what you've written, and I think this is actually really interesting, is that you say the real issue on campuses isn't anti-Semitism. It's the anti-Western ethos that has colonized large swathes of the curriculum. So I wonder if you could just explain what you mean by that, why you think the problem goes beyond the anti-Semitism we've seen and actually speaks to a broader anti-Westernism. Well, thank you so much for asking me that, Brendan. Um, And let me just say, what is at stake here? And what is the game that the left is using to ensure that this gets diagnosed exclusively as anti-Semitism? And that's best illustrated by a speech that the now defenestrated Claudine Gay gave at the Harvard Hillel chapter at a, at a Shabbat dinner in, I think, late November. And she said that Harvard has never, it has always had a problem with anti-Semitism and it has never uh, overcome that anti-Semitism. And that's what we're dealing with now. She was trying to create a continuity between the traditional anti-Semitism that kept Jews out, put a ceiling on the admission of Jews because they were not clubbable. You know, this is the genteel wasp anti-Semitism of the first half of the 20th century that excluded Jews because they were seen as outsiders or a threat to Christian civilization. And again, that was sort of a wasp Anglo instinct. And let me bring in another uh, little point of evidence here. There was a speech that was given at Cornell University by a professor of Jewish and, and Middle Eastern studies called The Intersectionality of Racism, uh, Islamophobia, and Other Forms of Hate. And his theory was that there was, then you'll hear this a lot on campuses, that there's this overlap between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Well, if you do the Venn diagram, the only people who would, in theory, be both anti-Semitic race, oh, I'm sorry, it's the triumvirate, is racism, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. So what group of people is going to be both racist, Islamophobic, and allegedly anti-Semitism? 
it's white. <laughs> it's, you know, traditional white MAGA supporters. This is a fictional uh, construct, but they're the only ones that would fit in because what we're seeing here is not that group. They are not the ones that are out there chanting, long live our martyrs. And when Gay is trying to say that what we're seeing here is traditional anti-Semitism, as if, you know, the, the people going to no Jews country clubs were the ones that were out there screaming, long live our martyrs. That's a lie. And the reason they're wanting to conflate all of these movements is to distract attention from the fact that this is a completely new phenomenon. It is the intersectional left that is producing such inanities as queers for Palestine, such complete like geographic historical ignorance to think that you're going to be able to hold a gay pride march in Gaza or in, you know, Middle Eastern countries that are the places that are shouting glory to our martyrs. And so what's going on here, this is the spawn, not of traditional anti-Semitism, but of a much broader critique, which says that the West is by definition in its very genetic code, oppressive to peoples of color the world over and other more recent uh, self-declaimed victims in the whole LGBTQ portfolio. Um, so that's what's going on. And, and to limit this to anti-Semitism and, and to even think of being bought off with a few sops of saying, we're going to do an anti-Semitism task force at the same time that we're also doing an Islamophobia task force and think that that is going to cure the profound hatred of Western accomplishment is completely delusional. Absolutely. And the way you explain it there, you can really see the dangers if these activists succeed in collapsing contemporary forms of anti-Semitism into their broader narrative about the problem of the West and the evil white man and the evil nature of Western civilization itself. There's real dangers in that because not only does that misunderstand, as you say, the nature of anti-Semitism today and where it comes from, but it boosts the very thing that inflames contemporary anti-Semitism, which is hatred for the West and that kind of radical academic turn against the West. So there are so many risks inherent in, in misunderstanding exactly what is happening on campuses right now. There's another way that you put it in one of your pieces recently where you say, Elite schools once disdained Jews because they were seen as outsiders to Western civilization. Now they are reviled as that civilization's very embodiment. And that's something that I've been thinking about for a while. I mean, another way of putting it, I think, is probably, you know, Jews were seen as not white or not white enough. Now they're seen as too white. Now they're hyper white. Now, you know, a lot of the intersectionists will say, well, you know, Jews are at the top of the hierarchy of the privileged. So you can really see there's been a dramatic shift in the forms that anti-Semitism take. And it's very clear to me that contemporary anti-Semitism is another expression of that loathing for the ideals of the West itself, and especially for the ideals of the modern West. So what would be your proposal for tackling that? Do you, are you saying that 
you just cannot tackle these contemporary forms of anti-Semitism without also, or even more importantly, perhaps, challenging the vicious turn against Western ideals that we've seen taking place on the academy and elsewhere in Western society in, in recent years. Yes. And well, you put it better than I could. And I would also say the reason that Jews are attacked is because they're successful. The hatred is also hatred towards what is seen as too much accomplishment. It's, it's hatred towards a civilization deemed too white and too male. And the only thing that the attackers can do is tear down. Uh, they're not offering alternatives, really. They're tearing down the statues. They're tearing down the names. They're tearing down the accomplishments, even as they are benefiting from this extraordinary juggernaut of understanding and accomplishment that was the West starting from at least the 17th century with the evolution of the scientific method, but really began much before that. And so, yes, the culture has to stop apologizing for itself. There is no grounds for apology when you know anything about world history. Yes, America in particular was egregiously hypocritical in its embrace of white supremacy and apartheid, and it treated blacks with heartbreaking, gratuitous nastiness and cruelty. One just can't even begin to believe who were these Southerners that were so cruel. Uh, but that insistence on defining the white American identity against blacks was quite pervasive. And that was incomprehensibly blind to how much of a violation that was to our founding ideals. We are not that country today. We are not that civilization today. But we, the West, America, Britain, is the only civilization that has provided the ideals against that endemic human instinct for sadism, for abuse of power. Nigel Bigger's book on colonialism sets out in extraordinary detail the sacrifices that Britain made in the 19th century of its resources, of its navy, of its economy to end the slave trade. Britain occupied Lagos to try and convince its rulers to detach from the slave trade. It used about 13% of its naval resources to blockade the west coast of Africa to stop the slave trade because those African leaders were so determined to continue profiting from selling their fellow Africans into slavery. The abolitionist movement began in the West and it fought hard to get the rest of the world to take up those ideals. So the rest of the world has been as cruel, if not more so, than the West. We should stop apologizing and recognize that our ideals have given the world freedom from poverty, from squalor, from oppression. And there is something absolutely mysterious that is going on in the Western mind right now, Brendan. And I don't know what your explanation is for it, but why Westerners uniquely among all civilizations are set on a path of 
cultural annihilation. No other civilization is engaged in this degree of self-flagellation. The Indian civilization is not, the Chinese civilization is not, the African civilization is not. They all have things as egregious to apologize for. None of them are doing it. Why the West is, is beyond me. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary. And many listeners will recognize exactly what you're describing there. I mean, it's so brilliantly and terrifyingly expressed in an idea like the decolonization movement, where you have the decolonization of curriculums on on campus, for example, fewer works by dead white European males who may have embodied the values of Western civilization, but we don't want to read them anymore. You've written really well about the attacks on Western classical music and the way in which that's now seen as the embodiment of whiteness. And we can't really listen to that as much as we used to. We certainly shouldn't enjoy it. Uh, You know, across the board, so many of the great gains and breakthroughs and works of beauty of Western civilization are either being pushed aside by a new generation or ignored or uh, actively demeaned and called into question. It really is extraordinary to behold. And as you say, it's hard to think of another great civilization anywhere in the world that is behaving likewise towards its own past and its own traditions and its own cultural gains. It is extraordinary. And I wanted to ask you, um, just to stick with the 7th of October for a moment, I wanted to ask you what you think the reaction to that told us about some of those trends more broadly. So for example, I saw very well-to-do, well-educated, mostly white activists here in the UK saying this was a great day. You know, the attack on Israel was a wonderful day, a day of celebration. Um, They said, you know, this is an act of resistance. And it, it became clear to me that there was a very strange and very unholy alliance emerging between Um, these Western loathers of their own civilization and a murderous group like Hamas, which obviously holds Western civilization in complete contempt and thinks the West is the great Satan. So that was a moment, wasn't it, at which we witnessed just how brutal the so-called decolonization movement can be when it throws its lot in, at least intellectually, if not militarily for the time being, with a movement like Hamas. I can't add anything to that. I mean, you have stated it with such clarity, and it just produces in me a sense of befuddlement and anger, disbelief. It is almost enough simply to describe that. And one would think that that should be self-correcting because it's so obviously preposterous. I mean, it is. it was an amazing moment that the hatred of anything Western and its counterpart is the glorification of the alleged victims of the West is so extreme that it involves the celebration of the most brutal and unconscionable terrorism and cruelty. So it leads to that. I mean, one stands before that fact in mute horror. All you can do is just repeat it. I don't know how you do an infinite regress of what explains it. We're up against the same dilemma, but let us look this in the face, how weird this is. Now, I guess, you know, one has to think, how would they describe it? And they just are so wedded to the idea that there is a get out of jail free card 
for anybody who claims victimhood, whether it's with regards to urban crime, you know, the America, we turn our eyes away from the dozens of insane drive-by shootings, fatal shootings that go on every single day in the United States, dozens of homicides every single day in the United States that are black on black, that are these absolutely brutal gang retaliatory shootings. And we pretend that's not going on because blacks are now the prime victim group. And we're only going to talk about them as victims of white supremacy. So in the extraordinarily rare cases where a police officer is engaged with a violent and resisting suspect and uses his gun, that's going to be the source of black oppression. And in the even rarer cases that are, you know, you can count on the fingers of one hand of of a white person killing a black, that's the only thing we're going to talk about. And it obviously applies to Middle Eastern terrorists now. They have an automatic entitlement to virtue and anything that they do against what is now the intersectional oppressive group is going to be celebrated. So I don't know. I mean, if we get more terrorist attacks on British soil or on American soil, how's the intersectional left going to react to those? You know, when we saw that after 9-11, there was reports of cheering going on in Patterson, New Jersey, when the World Trade Center Twin Towers came down. I'm perfectly willing to credit those cheering because we saw that in the Middle East uh, and we are not assimilating our immigrants here. So that's probably going on too. And, and so, again, we just come back to this instinct of self-annihilation. And one philosophical route you know, that Nietzsche set out was the glorification of the victim that he thought was one of the traits of Christianity as opposed to classical thinking and and mythology that still celebrated success and accomplishment. I'm not an expert. You know, I'm sure that many Christians would say that's an unfair characterization of Christianity, but there is a strain within Western thought that does say that the poor, the victims, they're the ones who should be on top at this point. Yeah, I think the cult of the victim, I think, has so much to answer for. And I'm I'm increasingly convinced that it not only does it act as a way of excusing the behavior of a group like Hamas, because they are apparently a victim identity, um, but it also, I think, inflames what they do and informs what they do. I mean, if you read some recent interviews with Hamas leaders, they openly use um, Western-style victim politics language. They will say things like, you know, we are the victims of this conflict. We can't be held responsible for what we do. Uh, one a Hamas leader literally said those words. Everything is Israel's fault. We're only responding. And it echoes so clearly comments you might hear on Harvard campus or anywhere else where uh, there is this attempt by people to absolve themselves of moral responsibility for their own lives and to blame everything on some all-powerful force, you know, usually white supremacy or something else, structural oppression. Um, so yes, I think the the spread of the politics of victimhood is really problematic. I think in relation to the terrorism thing, one thing I've noticed is that with every major terrorist attack, this cultural response in the West has got worse and worse. So after 9-11, there was some, as you say, there were flickers of people essentially saying, well, maybe we deserved it. There was a little bit of that. After the Charlie Hebdo massacre, 
there was a lot more of that, actually. There was a lot more of people saying, well, you know, if you didn't draw a picture of Muhammad, maybe you'd still be alive. And, you know, we had American novelists refusing to celebrate Charlie Hebdo with a pen award for courage. And then after the 7th of October pogrom, the dam opened and we saw so much commentary saying, well, Israel had it coming and the West has it coming for backing Israel. So it's just got worse and worse over the time. And one thing that worries me, I I want to put this to you without sounding too um, fatalistic or too panicky, but you do start to think that if our younger generations in particular are so willing to align themselves with the forces of barbarism, which is how we should describe a group like Hamas. You do wonder how long it is until they are willing to at least countenance acts of barbarism here in the West. You know, do you think that line between civilization and barbarism has become worryingly thin in recent years? I mean, this is absolutely profound and right what you're saying. And of course, they will countenance that. I mean, we've already been through that in the 60s with the much, much smaller involvement of the weather underground in terrorism, uh, support for Black Panther type uh, violence as well. But the crazed belief of anarchists, and of course, we've also seen the anarchist movement has long roots back to the 19th century in Europe. But those were fringe groups, and the mainstream establishment had no hesitation about condemning them and using forces of law enforcement, whether lawful or unlawful, to try and crush them. And the incredible sea change in our world today is that this self-destructive ideology is embraced by the elites. You know, you have the gatekeepers of our most profound and sublime cultural traditions in, as you say, classical music or art, theater, science, medicine, turning on the legacies that it is their unbelievable privilege to curate and declare that those are oppressive racist legacies and that anybody involved in them, you know, needs to get engaged in some kind of purification ritual to try and separate himself from this awful taint of racism. And so I think that your hypothesis is perfectly reasonable that there would be an appetite for more extreme forms of self-cancellation. And I'll just add to your sense and brilliant description of how the victim mentality works as a solvent for personal responsibility and how we basically accord groups who get to have the highly status-filled, desirable uh, moniker of victim, we accord them a total absolution from any responsibility for their own acts. I'm researching something right now, a, a law in California that is the end of the criminal justice system and the end of individual responsibility. It says that if a defendant can say that in the past there was a historical pattern of disparate law enforcement activities, say, in charging defendants or prosecuting them for, let's face it, basically black defendants, and those studies that charge that there are these disparities are completely bogus studies. They never take into account criminal history. 
They never take into account the egregiousness of an act. They just look at, well, more blacks were given sentences that took into account gang activity than whites. Therefore, we've got a racist criminal justice system. We're not going to ask, well, maybe blacks are more involved in gang crime than whites. Once you establish that, you get to basically say that I now, as a defendant, cannot be prosecuted because in the past, according to my phony statistical studies, this county discriminated against black defendants. You, current prosecutor, may be completely non-discriminatory, but you still can't prosecute me. It's the end of criminal justice. And this is all because of the victim mentality and saying, I can't be held responsible for my acts. You can't even prosecute me. So the only thing one can hope, if we weren't swept up in this, the only act of justice would be, okay, all you self-hating beneficiaries of Western civilization, all you queers for Palestine, bring it on. You know, try to live under the regimes that you're saying are so far superior. If you want to live without the criminal law enforcement, if you think it's so racist, tell the police, withdraw completely. If you want to live without the concept of civil rights and human rights and believe that LGBTQ members are going to be better treated under a non-Western regime, be my guest, you know, step up to the plate and I'm happy for you to live in those regimes. Unfortunately, there's fewer and fewer places for you and I, Brendan, to escape to where we can still count on the benefits of law and order, a belief in the sanctity of property, a belief in the ability of human beings to use reason and free speech to to get to the solution to problems. I don't know where we go, but I'd be very happy to let these anti-Western people give up on vaccines, give up on their smartphones, give up on clean water, fresh milk, you know, no infant mortality like we used to have. Go live in the third world that you think is so great. I wish you all the best. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book. And I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. Following on from that, I wanted to ask you how widespread you think the problem is, especially amongst the new generation? Because one interesting turn of events that we've had in the UK over the past couple of weeks is that there has been a lot of discussion about what would happen to Britain if Russia invaded us? What would happen if there was actually a new world war, World War Three? People have got to stand up and defend their country. And there have been a few polls in which very large numbers of people have said, I wouldn't sign up. I would rather our country was taken over rather than me having to fight a war. A very worrying uh, discovery about the unwillingness of large sections of society to fight for their country. And 
I've tended to think about some of the problems we're discussing as being most pronounced amongst the upper middle classes, the movers and shakers in culture and politics and the media, which is not to say that isn't bad. That's very bad indeed. But I've always held on to the hope that there are large sections of the working classes who remain very sensible, who are willing to put their necks on their line for their families, for their communities, and sometimes for their country. And I I think that is the case. But isn't it a concern that the more that our schools teach national self-loathing and the more that our museums say, well, we should be ashamed of our history, for example, the Natural History Museum here in London, one of the great museums in the West, has recently said that it will rethink its Charles Darwin exhibitions because Darwin was a colonialist, he went on a colonial ship, you know, and we've seen statues being taken down and streets being renamed and um, all sorts of things taking place, which basically incite the populace to either hate their own country or to be wary of their country's history. And you do start to think to yourself, who's going to take up a gun and fight for a country that is supposedly so horrible and so racist and so pockmarked with one crime after another over the past hundreds of years? How widespread do you think this problem is becoming? Is it breaking beyond the usual suspects and impacting on society more broadly? Well, uh, I thought about this in terms of the alleged mental health crisis among the young, which I think is partly specious. I mean, they're being encouraged constantly to think of themselves as traumatized and mentally vulnerable. You know, the other part of the campus bureaucracies is the massive mental health bureaucracy, and there's counselors and therapists and petting dogs and meditation rooms and, you know, you can go and rake sand at Yale because you're so oppressed by Yale. But to the extent that there's anything that is changed and real in that, I explain that very much as part of the fact that young people, number one, have been given nothing to believe in. They have been fed guilt from the time they're able to read And number two, they've been stripped of the beauty of childhood innocence with the LGBTQ advocates rubbing their nose in premature knowledge of sexuality, stripping them of that zone of exquisite delight and imagination that was so beautified by the great British children's literature tradition that was so important to me. I feel so privileged to have read Wind in the Willows and and Alice in Wonderland and Winnie the Pooh. I mean, I am so grateful for your British writers for having understood this amazing realm of, of childhood and being able to speak to it with such irony and delicacy and humor. And children today are not allowed to enter that world. They're being told immediately, let us bring you into the fallen state of sexuality. And I think that is stunting their soul. It's giving them nothing to retreat into. I can still retreat in my imagination into these fanciful worlds and and they don't have that. So that's part of it. I think you're absolutely right to say that it's sapping any kind of just and do willingness to stand up for what you believe is right. And the problem is 
hugely related to males uh, because they are the traditional defenders of civilization. They are the defenders of women and children. And I was very amused to see that the feminists were quite silent when the first release of hostages from Hamas was women and children. Now, if you were a true principled feminist, you should be up in arms about that because there should be no special consideration for women if we're all equal. And yet the feminists were quite willing to shut up and allow females to be given priority over males on the traditional view that they are more vulnerable. I believe they are. I do not believe there should be females in combat units. I think that is a travesty and it's a fraud and it is a sure recipe for destroying our combat readiness. But whether males will be willing to step up and defend a country when they have been told by the elites that to be male is to be toxic. And so now you have, you know, the withdrawal of males in the United States, at least, high degrees of drug involvement, high degrees of non-involvement in work. They're all on disability payments, mostly for drug abuse, sitting in their basement, you know, playing video games. And of course, then we have the obesity problem, the ability to find qualified recruits who can actually run half a block you know, gets harder and harder. That's a real problem. So yes, I think that we are moving towards a complete apathy when it comes to defending our civilizational inheritance. Yeah, absolutely. And I really agree with what you say about uh, children in particular and the way in which children's mental health is talked about this. It's such a strange and contradictory process because I remember when I was a kid, I would spend many an hour in the universe of um, Roald Dahl and loving Roald Dahl. That was my go-to read. Um, And these days you have a situation where on the one hand, Roald Dahl books are being rewritten because they might offend kids' fragile sensibilities because he refers to Augustus Gloop as fat. But on the other hand, those same children are told they can choose their own genders. They can bind their breasts when they get to the ages of 11 and 12. They have to share their bathrooms with teenage boys if you're a girl. You know, and they can be read children's stories by drag queens called Flowjob. There was a a drag queen in the UK called Flo Job who's been reading books to kids, but those same kids can't read Roald Dahl in case they're offended by the word fat. You see all the adult confusions about what is right and wrong being projected onto the way in which we socialize or fail to socialize our children and fail to inculcate in them a sense of robustness, a sense of pride, a sense of taking pride in their community and their family. All of those failings, I think, are going to come back to bite us. Um, Just to wrap it up, I wanted to ask you one more question, um, which is the big question in some ways, which is what we do about (laughs) all of this, which is uh, obviously a a far more long-term thing to think about. But one of the things that you write about really well, and it's something that I've admired for a long time, is I guess the sacrificing of merit at the altar of racial quotas, the sacrificing of the ideal of meritocracy at the altar of all sorts of other agendas to do with equity and, and so on. And you write about the consequences that that has for excellence, for art, for the academy, for schools, for the way in which we socialize young people and and get the best out of them. So I did want to ask you, where you think the discussion about merit currently stands. And it always shocks me when people like you and others are damned as 
you know, bigots or prejudicial because you dare to stand up for the great virtue of merit. But I wonder where you think it stands right now and what might be done to better restore it in our institutions. Well, we have to stop being scared of being called a racist and be willing to confront the facts. And as long as those facts are kept off stage, the left wins. As long as you cannot say that the reason that we don't have perfect racial proportionality in our institutions is because there are vast academic skills gaps and vast crime commission gaps, the left wins because then the only allowable explanation for the fact that in any remaining meritocratic labs that are trying to cure cancer or solve Alzheimer's disease, if you don't have 13% Black oncologists or Black neurologists in those labs, 13% being the proportion of Blacks in the U.S. population, if the only allowable explanation for that lack of 13% Black representation in these meritocratic institutions is racism, that those are racist labs that are somehow discriminating against competitively qualified Black oncologists and neurologists, the left wins. You know, then you say, okay, we need quotas because these neurologists are so damn racist uh, that left to their own devices, they're going to keep out the best uh, scientists. What we have to talk about is bite the bullet and bring something into the open, which under ordinary conditions, racial etiquette would say, well, let's not look at these things. Uh, And it makes white Americans extremely uncomfortable to look at facts like these, which is that when you look at the fact that 66% of black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills, such as being able to do arithmetic or read a graph, and the number of black 12th graders who are advanced in 12th grade math is too small to show up statistically on a national sample, it is preposterous to expect that absent racism, every meritocratic institution would be 13% black. So this is something that America turns its eyes away from. They pretend that there is not a absolute epidemic of drive-by shootings in black neighborhoods, and that the only reason that blacks are overrepresented in prison, blacks are about a third of our prison population nationally in the United States, despite being 13% 13% of the of the national population. The only reason for that has got to be a racist criminal justice system. We're not allowed to talk about the exponentially elevated rates of crime. Like black juveniles are shot at 100 times the rate of white juveniles in the United States. And they're not being shot by the police. They're not being shot by whites. They're being shot by other blacks. I can tell you the same disparities occur in Britain with knife crime. And yet your metropolitan police would rather accuse themselves of racism than say our officers cannot go where people are being victimized by violent crime without having a disparate impact on our immigrant minority communities. We have got to get over that fear, tell the truth, stop apologizing, because if we don't, if we allow the left to dominate this discourse, as I say, it's all coming down. We will have no more success. I'm amazed that I need to make the argument to Americans. They're oblivious. It sometimes helps to say it's happening in medicine. We are using racial quotas for admissions to medical schools. We are using them for 
passing the licensing exam. We're getting rid of grades and going to pass fail because they have disparate impact on black medical students. We are promoting people up the chain. You may be, you know, at the receiving end of a quota doctor, not somebody who's been chosen based on his merit. That maybe get people's attention, but otherwise I'm kind of at my wits end, Brandon, what it's going to take to get this thing turned around. And I don't know, what do you think? Well, I think the starting point has got to be the one that you've outlined there, which is always telling the truth about what's happening in our society. And um, until we do that, everyone loses out. Firstly, society itself loses out because as we're not getting the most excellent people into the most important positions. But also, um, young black kids lose out, people from other ethnic minority groups lose out because we're not having an honest discussion about the various ways in which they have failed at the very beginning of the education system or in other aspects of community life, which means that they're often not fully prepared for university, for certain jobs and so on. So people lose out across the board. Every section of society loses out until we can have, as you say, the honest discussions we need to have about the problems in our society, I think. Right. And telling them from the very start that they're a victim and they're going to have double standards is a way to guarantee that they will not reach their full potential. You have to have the expectation that if you work, you will succeed. It is absolutely a toxic way for our society to try to close the racial skills gap, which is to tell Blacks they are inevitable victims. High expectations is the best you can do for anybody as a parent You don't make excuses, I hope, for your children. We should not, as a society, do that. We should believe that given opportunity and treated equally, that all groups will be able to maximize their potential without having to fall back on the phony victim card uh, to explain these disparities. Heather McDonald, thank you very much. Such a great conversation, Brendan. My mind is blown. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.